beloved, as we continue worshiping this morning, we invite you to turn in your Bible or Bible apps to the words of the prophet Jeremiah, the 12th chapter, beginning in the first verse. Let us receive the word of God. You will be in the right, O Lord, when I lay charges against you, but let me put my case to you. Why does the way of the guilty prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and bring forth fruit. You are near in their mouths, yet far from their hearts. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test me. My heart is with you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of the slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the wickedness of those who live in it, the animals and the birds are swept away. And because people said, he is blind to our ways. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, for all of the ways that you are at work in and through our lives, we thank you. And now I pray that your spirit would settle me into this place so that the word that you have given me for this day might go forth and land in ways that might speak of your love, of your justice, of your grace in our lives. Meet us where we are and help us turn to you in this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. For some cultures, lament is simply a part of life. This shows up sometimes in the personal and communal rituals of people's faith traditions. Sometimes lament emerges as music rising from a people's soul, art formed from the lived reality of their lives. The black spirituals that many of us know well in the church and their cousin, the blues, are examples of this. The late venerable black liberation theologian, James Cone, says plainly, quote, I am the blues and my life is a spiritual. Without them, I cannot be. However, for many people, this sort of centrality uh, or presence of lament in their lives isn't a thing. In fact, for many people, there's a natural aversion to the idea of lament. This arises from a variety of influences, both religious and cultural. In many churches, it is communicated mostly through unwritten rules that tension, anger, 
and really any emotion identified as negative are not appropriate or welcome. I've heard often over the years that someone had chosen to stay away from church when they were suffering because they might cry or because they felt they couldn't be the way they thought they needed to be in church. And in an effort to balance what was and still is in some places, an overwhelming focus in the church on sin and guilt, the tendency is to avoid the downer topics of failure and fear, or even the practice of confession. Stadiums and sanctuaries fill up where the power of positive thinking theology and happy, clappy worship downplays, denies, or distracts from the deep pain and loss, struggle, injustice, and feelings of confusion and powerlessness that many experience every day. One author writes, quote, it seems safe to say that within American culture, there are deeply conflicting attitudes towards expressions of grief, rage, and other negative emotions. On the one hand, there is the oft noted tendency in our culture to cover up experiences of loss and failure in both personal and public life, and to uphold what has been called official American optimism. On the other hand, there is a strong counterpressure in therapeutic American society, often encouraged by the mass media, to let it all hang out, to demand that all emotions be immediately and publicly vented. The let it all hang out impulse without any safe or guided channel simply spews painful emotions in every direction in ways that don't lead to healing, but rather do more damage. Let me be clear, this is not what the spiritual practice of Judeo-Christian lament is. I was tempted today to preempt a variety of concerns by sharing a whole list of things that lament is not. However, I've chosen to simply say that over the course of this Lenten season, we will explore some of what the spiritual practice of Christian lament is. As I said this past week in our Ash Wednesday service, if ever a time called for lament, this is it. Over the years in pastoral conversations, I've discovered that often the key question 
the question that loosens the knots of confusion and stuckness is this. Who is God to you? How do you think about God? What is God like in your experience? The answer affects how we feel and act in relationship with God. If we think of God as remote and hands-off, a benevolent but uninvolved creator, that will affect our engagement. If God is understood as controlling all things in a micromanaging kind of way, that will evoke a different kind of relationship. If our conception is that God fixates on our mistakes or is mostly about punishment, well, you can imagine that makes a difference in how we feel about God and about ourselves. In these common ways of thinking about God, we're left in a pretty crummy place. In one sense, in one of those scenarios, we're left on our own, no help, left to our own devices. In another scenario, we are powerless and manipulated on the game board of God's plan. And still another, we're fearful, never feeling that we measure up and weighed down with guilt. These feelings may hit closer to home than we might care to admit. None are appealing or helpful, especially when faced with suffering, persecution, anxiety, injustice, and death. Thankfully, we're not left with only these conceptions of God. They're powerful. But that's not all we've got. As feminist theologian Elizabeth Johnson highlights, the tendency has often been to think about the God-human relationship in a power over or a powerlessness paradigm. She invites us to shift to a power with image. This invokes a different kind of relationship altogether. I remember years ago, a member of my then congregation noted that she felt really solid about the words I say at the beginning of worship every Sunday, except for when I get to that part that says, God knows you by name, loves you, and wants to have an ever closer relationship with you. She said, the relationship part is where I need work. Friends, this is where I want to ground our understanding of lament in all the various ways that we will explore it through this Lenten season. God doesn't just want to be around you or to observe you, or to be a vague energy in your life. God wants to have an ever closer relationship with you.
a relationship. As Jewish theologian Martin Buber described it, God wants to be in an I-thou relationship, subject to subject, free agent to free agent. This is understood as a relationship that is mutual, that is respectful of the other's freedom, that honors the uniqueness and the dignity of the other. It is a sharing of two selves, a power with kind of meeting. I'm not suggesting that we are equal to God. I'm simply suggesting that there is dignity and mutuality and freedom, real relationship that is desired. Now, perhaps this sounds obvious or simple, but do keep in mind that scripture and particular conceptions or images of God or the God-human relationship have been used through the ages and even now to justify subjugation of women, people of color, and other minoritized groups. To make us feel that we don't have agency or voice or power. Some of you will have watched the PBS series, The Black Church this past week and been reminded how slave masters feared enslaved persons learning to read because once they could read the Bible for themselves, they would understand even more clearly both who God is, a God of justice and liberation, and who they were, are, to God, namely, beloved children of dignity and worth. The spirituals were, according to Howard Thurman, an expression of the slave's determination to be in a society that seeks to destroy their personhood. It's an affirmation of the dignity of the black slaves, the essential humanity of their spirits. Likewise, feminist and womanist theologians highlight the ways that biblical prayers of lament provide a model for women's resistance to domination and abuse. One author writes, women who have been taught like children to be seen and not heard in relation to faith and religion should notice that the very act of putting anger, impatience, and frustration into words often enables the speakers in the Psalms and other biblical laments to come to a renewed sense of assurance in God's continuing care. My friend and teacher, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, 
gave voice to all of this with his famous call and response, lament and affirmation. I may be poor, but I am somebody. I may be on welfare. I may be uneducated, but I am somebody. I may have made mistakes, but I am somebody. I must be. I'm God's child. The core affirmation in Reverend Jackson's affirmation is that you are a person. You are somebody. You have agency, your voice, your experience, your perspective matters. And not only if or when you're successful in the world's eyes or have power according to the world's economy, but also when you've hit rock bottom and don't have anything, don't feel that you have anything. You can cry out from that place and be met there by a God who knows you by name and who loves you and who wants to have an ever closer relationship with you. And in that relationship, you don't have to clean it all up. And you certainly don't have to have the right answer or any words. I've observed over the years, particularly when teaching about prayer, that there is a strong tendency to feel that being angry at God, talking back to God, or accusing God is off limits, that it's wrong, or that it breaks the good, faithful Christian rules. Our scriptures contradict this over and again. As persons in the texts reveal faith in God's steadfast presence, precisely through their anger at God, their arguing with God, their accusations against God. This, you see, is a sign that they know themselves to be in the kind of relationship with God that allows them to be somebody with God to be free, to speak, to act, to feel right from where they are. Our text from Jeremiah is a good example. In this lament, the prophet brings formal charges against God, saying, let me put my case to you. Why does the way of the guilty prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Jeremiah implies, as he goes on, that the wicked continue in their destructive ways because God is blind to their ways. Jeremiah speaks of how the treacherous have God in their mouths, but not 
their hearts. And then he cries out, my heart is with you. And what I hear him saying is, and look at what I'm going through. This is unfair. Give the guilty their due, God. Our focus today is not to try to answer Jeremiah's perennially valid question of why so often the guilty not only get away with their crimes, but prosper. Our focus today is on the fact that Jeremiah lifts his voice with this complaint and request to God. Notice that Jeremiah didn't just spew his anger and complaint all over society. He brought it to God in relationship. This is what we're talking about when we speak of lament. I can already hear some sweet church people responding to Jeremiah. Can you imagine what some would say in the presence of Jeremiah's outcry? Well-meaning, sweet church people. Now, now, I know it's hard. It's not fair. But God has a plan. God is in control. And I then hear Jeremiah firing back. If God is in control, and this is what's happening, then I don't want anything to do with that God or to be anywhere near that God because none of this is okay. One teacher writes, and I quote, a lament is a passionate expression of distress. To lament is to wail and to complain and to sing the blues of loneliness and hopelessness, helplessness, grief, exhaustion, and absence of meaning. It is the voice of a person in turmoil. Finding this voice for ourselves and learning a vocabulary with which we can honestly engage in a way that does not deny or dishonor very real anguish is vital. Availing ourselves of the language of lament is the alternative to disengagement. If we aren't given permission to lift our own voice, to name what is real for us in our lives, to lament, then we may very well 
disengage. I don't need this. We may disengage from other people, from the church, from life, from God. I distinctly remember a woman in one of my prayer courses explaining how she felt that God had abandoned her in her time of greatest need, the suffering and death of a loved one. As we engaged in some conversation, it became clear that she had never felt she could name how angry she was at God for all that had happened. She realized that she didn't believe she had permission to bring that anger directly to God. She had lost her voice. She had denied her true feelings and experience. And as a result, had put distance between herself and God. She didn't think she could bring all of that into God's presence. So she wandered off. And she said to me, I wandered away. Maybe God has been waiting for me all along. You have permission to lament. You have permission to bring your charges against God. You have permission to come into God's presence as the somebody that you are. God is there, waiting. In these days of Lent, these Sundays, we'll spend just a moment each week in a prayer of confession. I invite us into that prayer now. Let us pray. Oh God, for the promise that you are always there. We thank you and we confess that we have not always remembered that you have created us, that you have loved us with an everlasting love and that you will receive us just as we are. Forgive us for the times that we have wandered away. Forgive us for the times when we have not remained close. Forgive us for the times when we have not trusted you to be with us in our grief, our pain, our struggle, our rage, our sense of abandonment. 
In these days, O God, give us grace and strength and courage to name what it is that is keeping us distant and to draw near to you. Accompany us as we observe a holy Lent and guide us toward paths which lead to life. Let all the people together say, Amen. Amen.